Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, for corporate news media, every mention of the Iraq War is a chance to fuzz up or rewrite history a little more. This year, the New York Times honored the war's anniversary with a friendly piece about how George W. Bush, quote, doesn't second-guess himself on Iraq, close quote, despite pesky people mentioning things like the torture of innocent prisoners at the Abu Ghraib prison. Federal Judge Leonie Brinkema has just refused to dismiss a longstanding case brought against Abu Ghraib torturers for hire, CACI, the company often known as Khaki. Unlike elite media's misty memories, the case is a real-world, stubborn indication that what happened, happened, and those responsible have yet to be called to account. We can call the case abstractly anti-torture or anti-war machine, as though it were a litmus test on those things, but we can't forget that it's pro-Suhail al-Shamari, pro-Salal al-Ijali, pro-all the other human beings horrifically abused in that prison in our name. We'll get an update on the still-ongoing case, despite some 18 attempts to dismiss it, from Bahir Azmi, legal director at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Also on the show, the Internet. Am I right? Thomas Germain is senior reporter at Gizmodo. He'll fill us in on some new developments in the online world that most of us, like it or not, live in and rely on. Developments to do with ads, ads, and still more ads, and also with the disappearing and potential disappearing of decades' worth of archived information and reporting. That's coming up this week on Counterspin, and we'll get right to it. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Earlier this month, the New York Times ran a report on the Arlington National Cemetery burial of Ian Fishback, a former special forces officer who, as the Times said, dared to challenge the Army on its soldiers' sustained abuse of Iraqi and Afghan men in their custody. Fishback's testimony, unequivocally characterizing the soldiers' behavior as torture, the paper explained, shattered the Pentagon's insistence that torture at Abu Ghraib was an isolated case. But it did lead to personal harm and hardship for Fishback. Of course, the actions that Fishback was moved to denounce had horrific and enduring impacts on many other people, starting with the victims of the torture. The Times has unfortunately been not particularly interested in the stubborn insistence of those people in having their case heard. One piece in March noted that opponents of the Iraq War say that the shame of the American abuses of prisoners at Abu Ghraib have not been forgotten by history, but it's disheartening that that sentence appeared within a piece centered on how George W. Bush, quote, doesn't second-guess himself on Iraq. Unquote. The ongoing case against military contractor Khaki Premier Technology Inc., hired to provide interrogation services at Abu Ghraib, is a chance for reporters to prevent 
our forgetting. The Center for Constitutional Rights has been leading that case, which a federal judge has just said can move forward since June 2008. We're joined now by phone by Bahir Azmi, legal director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. Welcome back to Counterspin, Bahir Azmi. Thank you for having me. Well, if you would ground us, first of all, with some context, this case is against a military contractor, not against the U.S. government per se, and it's about just a handful of plaintiffs. It's not the be-all, end-all on the horrors of Abu Ghraib, much less the invasion and the war. But it is the last case standing, and it carries meaning within itself and beyond itself, would you say? Yeah, that's right. This is actually the third of uh, three cases we brought on behalf of Iraqi victims of torture by the U.S. government and private military contractors in Iraq and Abu Ghraib. One case was thrown out by the D.C. Federal Court of Appeals, led by Kavanaugh with a dissent from then-Judge Garland. A second case on behalf of 71 individuals brought against a translation company, L3 Services, that settled favorably. And this, the third, is brought on behalf of three remaining plaintiffs, three victims, of torture at the so-called hard site at Abu Ghraib, where all of the depictions of torture we have seen were revealed. And it's very challenging to sue the U.S. military for torture, but U.S. generals did an investigation of the torture at Abu Ghraib and identified that private military contractors, including Khaki, had a preeminent role. Khaki sent a number of untrained individuals to serve as interrogators under a very profitable $35 million contract. And as the reports and the evidence revealed in the command vacuum that occurred at Abu Ghraib, that it was khaki interrogators who were telling military police, including people you might recognize if you're old enough, Lindsay England, Ivan Frederick, and Charles Grainer to, quote, soften up detainees via torture for later interrogation by khaki. So this seeks accountability against the private military contractor for actions that U.S. service members spent considerable time in a military brig for, and it seeks to close that accountability gap and hold this profit-making enterprise accountable for its clear role in contributing to the torture and abuse of our plaintiffs. Well, I don't know if it matters to say at this point that prisoners in Abu Ghraib were not criminals. These were not people who were charged and convicted, but maybe that's worth mentioning here. Correct. And there are clear, clear duties under the laws of war to respect their not engage in war crimes or what is called cruel and human and degrading treatment. And notably, the judge in this case has found sufficient evidence that Khaki was a direct conspirator aided and abetted the actual torture of our clients. So enough evidence that a jury could find them liable. And that's what we're hoping will be the next step in front of a United States jury. Well, Khaki says, as I understand it, that since the United States would have immunity in this case, well, then we were working for them. So we also have immunity. What do you have to say? I mean, I remember an interview with deeply missed CCR President Michael Ratner explaining in 2004 that this idea that torture isn't torture came in with U.S. Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez and kind of things 
yeah. went south at that point. But that's Khaki's line that since we're acting as the government, we therefore have immunity against these charges? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The subtext of this is a really sort of disturbing pattern among all private military contractors, which I think is seeking precisely this, even though they act for profit, have no sovereign responsibilities, are no way politically accountable, democratically accountable. They want to assume the same benefits as the government, as if Aki was a sovereign entity rather than a profit-making entity. That seems like a terrifying notion for me. And, and the subtext is, I think, ultimately from an, a range of private military contracts to get the law in the place to fulfill a kind of Eric Princean vision where private military contractors can go into war spaces and enjoy the same immunity as the United States government. And so far, the courts have plainly resisted that. You're not allowed to assume the immunity of the United States government if you yourself have broken the law, even as a contractor. And the courts have rejected Kaki's argument, building on what John Yu and Dick Cheney have said, because these are not legal questions. They're political questions. They're out of the jurisdiction of the courts, what we choose to do with prisoners mm -hmm. during wartime. And the court flatly rejected that and said they can be accountable for torture, even if they were participating with the military. All right, then. Well, for many people, Abu Ghraib is a series of horrific photographs and maybe the government's efforts to suppress them, the media's release of them, and then a kind of collective gasp, you know, shocking the conscience, we, we heard. But then we got the sense, vaguely speaking, that since we've had our conscience shocked, we've addressed it. And so let's all move on from that difficult time. But if no real deep going up to the top accountability happens, aren't we just kind of setting ourselves up for the next, oh my gosh, that's terrible, that's carried out in our name? Well, you know, I really quite agree. And I've been, you know, as someone who's been heavily involved and early involved in the responses to the human rights crisis created by the Bush administration and the lawlessness there, I draw a connection between the kind of soft authoritarianism of the Bush administration and the sanctioned lawlessness and demand for impunity and subverting U.S. institutions and constraints on executive power to the kind of hard authoritarianism that the Trump administration embraced. I mean, should we really be surprised by the Muslim ban that Trump escalated, given what the Bush administration tried and largely got away with? Should we be surprised with lawyers like John Yu in, in, in the torture context and John Eastman in the insurrection context trying to sanction or legitimize under law subverting American institutions? I think precisely the problem with not holding high-level officials to account is these abuses get replicated and indeed escalated. Well, we're going to end on that important note. We've been speaking with Bakr Azmi, legal director at the Center for Constitutional Rights. You can track their work, including on this case, which is not closed, but is going forward at ccrjustice.org. Bakr Azmi, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you very much.
in the 1980s when we at FAIR would talk about how the goals of journalism as a public service and of information as a public good were in conflict with those of media as a profit-driven business, we were often met with the contention that the Internet was going to make that conflict meaningless by democratizing access to information and somehow sidelining that profit motive with technology. Well, now we're here, and much of our lives are online. It's where many get news and information, how we communicate and learn. But power is still power, and the advertising model that drives so much fear and favor in traditional journalism is still in effect. So while much is different, there are still core questions to consider when you're trying to figure out why some kinds of news or content is in your face, like it or not, and why some perspectives are very hard to find, and why there's so much garbage to get through to get to any of it. Our next guest's job is to report on life online. Thomas Germain is a senior reporter at Gizmodo. He joins us now by phone from here in town. Welcome to Counterspin, Thomas Germain. Happy to be here. Well, there are internet rules that are not visible to all users, uh, particularly those of us who aren't looking into the gears of the thing. You know, we just want to read articles or look at cats falling off chairs. But as offline, if you would, media have unseen rules, like if a sponsor can't be found to buy ads on a show, well, that show's not going to air, no matter how much people might like it. There are also behind-the-scenes factors for Internet content that are not journalistic factors, if you will. I, I wonder if you would talk us through what CNET, which many listeners will know is a long-standing website dedicated to tech news, what is CNET currently doing, and, and what do you think it means or portends? Yeah, so CNET is one of the oldest technology news sites on the Internet. It's been around since 1995, and they have tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of articles that they've put up over the years. But I got a tip that CNET had started deleting its old content because of a theory about improving the site's performance on Google. And I went and I checked it out, and what I found was the company has been deleting thousands of its own articles. Now, there's a lot of complicated reasons that this is happening, but the number one thing that people need to understand is a lot of the writing that happens on the Internet is aimed at much at robots as it is at humans. And what I mean here is the algorithms that run Google search, right? Almost all Internet traffic is driven by how high you show up in the search results on Google. And there's an entire industry called search engine optimization that is essentially a kind of gamified effort to get your content and your website and individual pages to perform better on Google. And this is actually a huge thing that drives the journalism business. It's the reason that you look at articles and you see the same keyword repeated over and over. Mm -hmm. It's basically one of the things that dictates what subjects journalists write about, what's covered, and how it's written. And the performance of your entire site dictates how your individual pages will do. And Google issued some guidance last year 
which suggested that if you've got some content on your site that's not performing well, it might help if you take it down. It didn't say this explicitly, but a lot of companies, CNET included, have been going through and looking at pages that aren't performing well, which tends to be older content. And some of that content, they're redirecting the URL of that page to other articles that they want to promote. And in some cases, they're taking it down altogether. So the effect of this is this kind of ironic thing, right? Google's entire reason for being is to make information easier to find. But in effect, because of the design of their algorithms, they're actually encouraging companies indirectly to take some information off the Internet altogether. Well, because if folks are not engaging, that's a word we've all learned to use, if, if folks are not engaging with a particular piece that a website might have up, then that's kind of like dragging down the SEO of the site generally is kind of what you're saying. Like it's like if you have a lot of content that folks are not actively engaging with, then maybe your new stuff might not show up so high up on Google. Is that vaguely the somewhere in the ballpark of what's happening? That's basically it. It's really complicated. And also, we don't really know exactly Mm -hmm. what's going on here. Google isn't super transparent about the way that its algorithms function. And search engine optimization, or SEO, is as much a guessing game as it is based on actual data. There's some information that journalists and, you know, content publishers have access to about how certain things are performing. But in other cases, it's just best practices and, you know, people crossing their fingers, Mm -hmm. essentially. So the one thing we know for sure is the more content that's on your website, the longer it takes Google's robots, they call them crawlers, to go through every page, which is how the company determines how certain pages will rank Mm -hmm. for search results. So what they've said is, is you've got a giant old site like CNET, and there's some content that's not performing well, Shrinking that down and calling it, they call it content pruning, can help you increase the performance of the content that you want to promote. So in effect, it could be an advantage to you if you've got a giant site to take some of that content down. I think listeners will already understand the harm that that does to public information and to journalism, because obviously we think of the Internet dumbly, perhaps, as an archive, you know, and there is a severe loss implied in sites like CNET and others, if they follow their lead, in deleting old material. Yeah, journalism, you know, they say that it's, you know, the first draft of history, right? And if you're doing any kind of, you know, archival research, if you want to know what people were talking about in 1997, it helps to be able to have a record of all these old articles, even if no one's reading them, even if they're about topics that don't have any obvious importance now. You know, CNET used the example of old articles that talk about the prices of AOL, which is a thing that you can't even get anymore. But this stuff can be important for reasons that aren't immediately obvious. And the loss of this information can really have a a serious detrimental effect on the public record. There are some companies that are working to preserve this stuff. The most well-known one is the Internet Archive. It's got this tool called the Wayback Machine, which goes and preserves copies of web pages. And CNET says that before it deletes content, it lets the Internet Archive know to make a copy of it. So it's not gone forever. And they say they preserve their own copy. But, you know, they're relying on a third-party service. It's a nonprofit to maintain this content. And who knows whether it's going to be around in the long term. 
But there's an effect on the journalists, right? Because you want a record of your work in order to just keep track of what you've done, but also to have stuff to put in your portfolio to get new jobs. So the erasure of this content can be a problem both for just the general public and for history, but also for the people who are tasked with writing this stuff in the first place. Absolutely. And of course, who knows what's going to be interesting from the past to look back on, because, you know, who, who knows? You can't predict what you might want to go back and look through. And, and, you know, maybe AOL will come up in the future and we'll want to know what was said about it at the time. So it seems like a, a loss. Well, I'm going to ask you to switch gears just for a second. I have been recently thinking about a line in the show Futurama when Fry, who has been transported to the far future, is shocked because a commercial appears in his dream. And Leela says, didn't you have ads in the 21st century? And Fry says, well, sure, but not in our dreams. Only on TV and radio and in magazines and movies and at ball games and on buses and milk cartons and T-shirts and bananas and written on the sky but not in dreams, no siree. You know, I think of that every time my phone beeps at 2 a.m. and it's Spotify saying, hey, uh, there's a a playlist that you might like. That's not anything I signed up for. What is up with what definitely feels like an increase in ads and in intrusive ads in all of the online spaces that we see? What's going on there? Yeah, I think this is something that, you know, everybody experiences, you're aware of it. We all know that we're seeing more ads, but I think people don't quite recognize how prevalent it is and how dramatically it's changed. And it's actually a recent change. So over the last year, we've seen a massive increase in the amount of advertising. We're seeing it in places we've never seen before. You know, Uber, I think, is an example where we're getting pop-up notifications that have ads in them. But just about every context you can think of. I saw an ad in a fortune cookie the other day. <laughs> if there's a space where there's people's eyes, it's being turned into a space for advertising. And there are two, I think, counterintuitive reasons that this is happening. And the first one is actually because there are increasingly regulations and restrictions about privacy, right? There's laws, you know, more so in Europe than in the United States, but there's laws that are restricting the ways that companies can collect and use your data. And simultaneously, Google and Apple, who control you know, all of the phones, understand that the writing is on the wall here. And they're trying to get out in front of regulation before it happens by putting their own limits on how companies collect data on their platforms. Mm-hmm. Now, what this does is it makes advertising less profitable, right? Because targeted ads make more money than regular ads. But those targeted ads need lots of data. And if the data is harder to find, it's harder to make money if you're a company that makes its cash on ads. So what do you do in that situation? You just increase the number of ads that you're showing people. Simultaneously, there's this other thing that's happening in the technology industry, right? Which is the economy, right? The federal government has raised interest rates that makes it more expensive to borrow money. And all of this endless runway that the technology companies had for the better part of the decade is suddenly drying up. And there's been this shift where investors have started to understand that the technology industry isn't some kind of magic money printing machine, and people are expecting more return on their investment. So if you're a company and you need to add a new revenue stream, you don't have any great ideas, the obvious one is to add more ads to your platform 
or put them in places where they've never been before. Mm -hmm. So there's these two competing forces, right, privacy and the economy, that are pushing companies to inundate us with ads. And it's really grown to an astonishing level. I saw a study, and this is from a couple years ago, it's gotten worse, where in the 70s, we saw on average between 500 to 1,000 ads a day. Now the number is somewhere between 5,000 to 10,000 ads that everyone is seeing on average in a single day, which seems like a lot, but we kind of become blind to it. If you add up the ads you're seeing on TV, all the sponsored posts, all the videos on TikTok where someone's been paid to promote a product, the ads we're seeing on bus stops and, you know, the little TVs at the grocery station, there's just constant advertising being blasted at us. And we don't know, for example, among other potential problems, how this might affect people's psyche. It's kind of a mass experiment that we're all going through at the same time, and we don't know what the effects are going to be. We did have laws at some point about that, but it certainly seems that laws and regulation are, let's just say, not keeping up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, most of the laws that govern the internet are laws that were adapted from other purposes, you know, from the 90s. For example, like health privacy rules are based on a law that was written in 1996 in the United States. You know, part of the problem here is regulators don't really understand what's going on, and that's to say nothing about our aging population of politicians. People don't really understand how the Internet works in the first place, let alone the ability to come to a consensus on what we should do. So the Internet, you know, more or less is a place that is unregulated. It's getting a little better, but we've got a lot of catching up to do. Well, we're going to end on that note, which is not an end note, um, but a question about moving forward. We've been speaking with Thomas Germain, senior reporter at Gizmodo, online at gizmodo.com. Thomas Germain, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. Great to talk to you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the National Media Watch Group FAIR, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. Counterspin is fueled by listener support. The website is one place to show support if you are able and so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.